Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world safer, happier, and more prosperous, and possibly more radioactive. If you're like myself, you spent five weeks glued to the TV watching the highest IMDb rated show of all time on HBO, Chernobyl. And before you continue, let me give you a spoiler warning. We're going to talk about the show in some detail. So if you have not watched Chernobyl, do not listen to this podcast. But do listen to it once you have gone and watched all five episodes. At this point, you can stream them back to back. Do so. It is well worth your time. So I wanted to talk with someone who both has seen the show, is a fan of the show, and has some expertise in nuclear power plants about what the show got wrong and what it got right about nuclear power in the 1980s, as well as the prospects for the nuclear energy industry today. So joining Matthew Feeney and I in the studio is Matt Crozat, the Senior Director for Policy Development at the Nuclear Energy Institute and a former analyst for the Office of Nuclear Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. Now, let's start with the show. What was your reaction when you first heard that HBO was putting out this Chernobyl miniseries, but before you watched it? Oh, no. <laughs> because, you know, HBO has this well-deserved reputation for driving a lot of attention, a lot of um, commentary. And there is a very straightforward way to make this incredibly sensationalized and very charged. And mm -hmm. so... It was a great deal of reticence when I first heard, oh, they're really going to do this? <laughs> um, and so it was with some trepidation and honestly, even the encouragement of, of this podcast that let me say, well, I should delve in sooner rather than later before I let this fester. And I'm glad I did. One of the things that really surprised me about the show was how much of it was about how nuclear power works. Mm -hmm. In order to explain what the core thesis of it looked like, the, the impact of lies and secrecy and denial for, of what's um, the facts around you, in order to understand that, you had to understand, well, how is the plant supposed to work? Mm -hmm. um, and in that regard, the idea that one of the, the key concepts here was the positive void coefficient blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Not that it was there, but the fact they used that phrase. Mm -hmm. I spent the first couple episodes explaining to my wife what that meant without using the phrase. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> boom, there it was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that was a very different way of, en of engaging in a much more concrete physical representation of of how the plant works down to an actual model of the plant in the final episode. The key thing to remember about nuclear energy and why it is both uh, a great promise for society and also something that needs to be treated very carefully is this concept of energy density. Mm -hmm. we, we, we tend to measure nuclear fuel in what we call pellets. It's about the size of a pencil eraser. That pellet of uranium fuel will contain about as much energy as a, a, train, a train car of coal. Um, about 140 some odd gallons of gasoline. I mean, that is a huge amount. Um, and so as a result, you can create an awful lot of energy to heat the water from your turbine in a very small footprint. Now, the key is in ensuring that you have the systems in place to manage that energy appropriately. Mm -hmm. One of the themes of the show was you would never build this reactor anywhere else. And part of the reason the, they kept coming back to that theme was you know, the the way you ensure that um, the fuel is kept safe is by having it cooled. So they use water for that. We use water for that. That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. When that water 
goes away because of running this test. Well, all of a sudden now, the main thing that's going to keep this reactor from uh, going out of control isn't there. But when you have this in the U.S. reactor, you have tests where you worry about water not being there. But the key is that water in the U.S. reactors and the Western reactor in general is also what helps this, the chain reaction keep Happen. going. Ah. <clears throat> in the in the case of the, the RBMK design, that water didn't have that job. Graphite had that job. And so water goes away, the chain reaction keeps going because the graphite's there to help make sure that works correctly, and it just gets hotter and hotter because you took the water out. And so you had this, you know, at the end in the, the trial scene, <clears throat> this wonderful depiction of how you're trying to keep the system in equilibrium, the red cards and the blue cards yeah, trying yeah. to show, well, which makes it hotter, which makes it colder, and how because of the way it was designed, once you start taking away the blue cards, it all gets worse. Um, and for the rest of the way that the reactors have been designed around the world for the last 40, 50 years, you don't want that feedback. You want to make sure that if you have a problem, the whole thing begins to calm down as opposed to getting worse. And that was that term positive void coefficient I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and it's just a very different way of, of doing it in the past, and only in, in Russia for that matter. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, but I think a, a lesson of, of innovation and, and technology is that you learn through trial and error. So the, the first cars did not have seatbelts or airbags, and uh, safety is something you learn through trial. And uh, is, there, is it the case looking back, uh, and of course this is always a difficult counterfactual to do, but w were the mistakes in Chernobyl uh, entirely predictable? Is it just incredible that no one could have foreseen that something like this was, uh, was, was possible, or is it a legitimate uh, oversight that took people by surprise? That's a hard question um, because of the counterfactual element of it. Let me take a different piece of it, which is one of the themes uh, when they came to casting blame on, especially Dyatlov, the, at the end, was that he was pushing to complete a test that was going to help him get a promotion. And even though the conditions weren't appropriate anymore, he was pushing because he had these incentives that weren't aligned with maintaining a safe operation of the plant. As I watch this from an American's eyes in the nuclear industry in the 21st century, that's nuts. The idea that you would have somebody who uh, was in charge of how the reactor would operate and your thought process is anything other than maintaining safe operation is kind of crazy. But it speaks, I think, as much to the cultural and institutional norms in which the Soviet nuclear program was operating in the 1980s as opposed to how we in the U.S. and the West more broadly thought about the role of nuclear energy in the civilian context. You know, I, I think that this was, to my mind, the core theme of what the show was trying to get across, of this notion of, you know, in the way um, Legasov worded, you know, what are the, what's the cost of lies? That, you know, because with those kinds of motivations and behaviors, you have... The important thing is to not say you were wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, you know, there is that great scene um, <clears throat> at the beginning of the fifth episode where you know, you move forward a bit. Lagasa's back in Moscow. He gets pulled into the car with the head of the KGB who's offering him 
promotions and validations for his performances on the world stage. And one of the lines that really stuck with me, he said, well, we'll do the trial, and I think his line is, and then we will have our truth. <laughs> which is a really interesting concept, and one of the things that keeps coming back throughout, which is the idea of truth in the Soviet Union as being a socially defined construct. And one of the things that really struck me is, that might work in a social context, but it's not going to work with physics. And this was the problem with, when you come back to the reactor and how you treated it. I saw, um, uh, I think Michael Schellenberger uh, has written some uh, articles for Forbes. Uh, it, it, it's a bit nitty gritty. This isn't quite right. This isn't, you know, but so we don't want to get down to that. But there, he did make a point about the firefighters. Uh, there's that one point where the firefighter is dying in the hospital. His wife ignores the commands by the nurse to not touch him. She touches him. And uh, they, it's implied later in the show that her she was pregnant and that her pregnant baby absorbed the radiation from her husband and, and died. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. And my understanding is that that's not how that works. That once you have the clothes off the firefighters and you've showered them, they're, it's unlikely that, that you'd be yeah, exposed I mean, like that. For as much as I thought they did a great job of explaining, especially the, in the final episode, how the plant worked and what went wrong. Those were some... Mm -hmm. Brilliant, yeah. Brilliant ways of doing it. I mean, it reminded me of the big short of trying to explain mm -hmm. complex financial observations mm -hmm. in the way that's actually, oh, that's interesting. Uh, the, the, how they talked about radiation at times, I kind of wasn't on the same wavelength. Trillions and billions of bullets. So, I mean, what I do think is, is worth understanding is what you're talking about in most of these cases are um, atoms that are going to, you know, are not stable. And so something's going to have to change, and they're going to shoot out some energy and probably a little particle. Like a, in the worst case scenario, it's uh, the biggest scenario is like two protons and two neutrons, an alpha particle. Okay, I don't get into the specifics, but that's all intermixed with physical stuff, the dust. I mean, part of the reason why the Chernobyl um, experiment uh, accident was so much worse than anything else was you had the fire that was creating the particles that takes the with it, and you could see where it's all going. But the point is, once you wash it off, it, uh, it you're not communicable. It it's it goes with it. So you take the clothes off, you get rid of the clothes, and it goes with the clothes. Um, but you had to be vigilant, diligent about it, uh, vigilant um, of how you treated it. Um, and that's part of what I thought was the real tragedy of the whole Chernobyl event was the Soviet authorities, you know, well, denying anything happened at all. Some pretty Basic actions would have been would have done a long way towards making a much less problematic uh, experience, but they ignored it rather than simply said, "Can you just stay inside for a couple of days while this goes away?" And they didn't do that. Um, things like um, one of the things you can get in trouble with is if you ingest um, radioactive particles because your body hasn't evolved to, to deal with them on being on the inside. Well, they were still serving milk from cows that were nearby. And so that was all being picked up. And that's really bad and, and incredibly unnecessarily. A question on, on accuracy. You mentioned earlier the, the portrayal of engineers after the, the explosion bleeding through their, through their clothes. What, what did you think about uh, what, what I guess the only way to describe is um, the really bad sunburn look of, of the burn. There's a, a, one of the more haunting scenes is I think at the end of the first episode when an engineer is told 
go up to the roof and peer down. Um, and you know, he turns around back to the camera and he looks like he's been out in the sun for days. Is that a realistic portrayal of what yeah, that exposure could do to yeah, you? Just, my understanding is that you will have burn-like effects from extremely high exposure to radiation. Mm -hmm. So that part didn't uh, didn't necessarily phase me as much. But there were other th ways that they portrayed it that I didn't quite get. Like when they showed the helicopter flying over and then it jumps for there was a helicopter accident there. It happened four months later. Um, and it wasn't because you went over the yeah. reactor. It was because you ran into a crane. That, that will do it, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so there's stuff like that that it, the, the dramatic license was towards making the all of the risk about what the radiation could provide. It, it was dramatized, right? I mean... Yes, right. And you know, I think you mentioned Schellenberger. I think there is... A question, to what extent do those dramatic licenses create visceral responses to in people that they associate with nuclear power more broadly, even if that wasn't the intention of the creator? And he's been very clear in his interviews that I've heard of saying he's pro-nuclear. Um, he, this is, to him, a story about the Soviet state, which I think is a very reasonable way to, to frame it. But if the you know, there is a, a possibility that people will have a visceral reaction to what they see on the screen and associate it with something that wasn't intended at all. Yeah. Now, um, as we talk about like radiation exposure and uh, you don't have to get into details of different exact levels. I mean, then the show it's like 3.6 is a meaningful threshold and then there's 15,000. So we have all these numbers thrown at us. And if you're like me, I went and Googled. <laughs> it was hard to find because again, our units are different than Röntgen. Um, um, but my understanding is that um, even even at Chernobyl, I mean, there were so you had cases like the engineer staring into the open pit and getting huge doses, but that most of the damage from Chernobyl, or most of the danger uh, that they were concerned about, was particles floating and exposing people to smaller doses that would increase their chance of having cancer later in life. Um, how does that how does that work? Why did that why was that such a problem at Chernobyl? Why was that? I mean, there were concerns about that at like Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in, in 79 and at Fukushima not that long ago. Why Why is that a different kind of case? So maybe walk us through what that means when it comes to radiation exposure and long-time cancer, increases of cancer diagnosis, and then what's different between Chernobyl and these other major nuclear accidents. So I'll, I'll talk generally about it because you're going to hit the limits of my expertise. Okay. Pretty, pretty quickly, and I don't want to misrepresent anything. But we do know that at high levels of radiation exposure, one of the, I'm going to say high, I don't mean people looking down. I right, mean, that's kind of extreme at, situation. At, at well above um, normal levels. Um, there have been you know, cases of increased cancer, and that's because especially once uh, radioactive material gets inside of a person. So, for example, I mentioned that there, one of the ways you have radioactivity is um, a, an atom's unstable, it will shoot off in particles. Well, the human skin is perfectly well evolved to let that just bounce right off. If, and so that's not a huge problem. However, if you eat it and that gets inside of you, your internal tissues are not at all evolved for that. I don't know if you recall the case of the, um, the former Russian... Um, diplomat in, in the UK about five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably the most recent case of acute radiation poisoning that we know of. And so you can do a compare contrast of his picture. I'm linking his name, unfortunately. 
But the whole point of that one was um, you took an element with these character, uh, I think it's polonium in that case, and he drank it. And so once that got inside of him, the effect on his internal organs was something they weren't ready for and created problems. Um, and at lower levels, but still high, um, that can manifest as cancers. As a matter of fact, the, the largest outcome of, uh, by number of the um, Chernobyl case was thyroid cancers because the thyroid gland absorbs iodine and one of the fission products that you get is a form of iodine that isn't well suited for um, uh, human uh, consumption. And that was why in the second episode when you had um, uh, Komyuk, the mm-hmm. Belarusian, that was what they picked up. They picked up the iodine. Um, now, that iodine problem goes away in about you know, a week or two because that acts quickly. But if it gets picked up in the thyroid, it can cause problems. So you had a lot of thyroid cancers. Yeah. Now, the thing about thyroid cancers, fortunately, is imminently treatable. So almost no one died from thyroid cancer. You shouldn't have had them in the first place, but um, the overall mortality effects were, were much lower. So let's talk about why this is a big problem in Chernobyl and it was less of one in Fukushima and Thermal Island. Yeah. So the, the first answer is a lot more material got out in Chernobyl, a lot. Because yes, we had the fire, but also they didn't have something else every other reactor has in the world, which is a containment building. So every other reactor in the world has a steel and concrete uh, container over it that, uh, that is air sealed. So when something happens, it just goes into the containment. So it does what it's supposed to do, as you might imagine from the name. So I don't have those kinds of massive levels of releases. You can still get some because, among other things, if too much pressure builds up, you got to do something. And so um, in those cases, you have the ability to let some material out, gases, to leave pressure. So in, in the case of Thrunel Island, there wasn't much of a release relative to what we're talking about. And so you weren't able to find much of any evidence that there were any cancers at all, um, thankfully, but also not surprisingly in hindsight because of what was what actually released. Uh, Fukushima was more, but they were also very proactive on how they managed it, maybe even more than they needed to be. Um, but there was no drinking of milk, yeah. uh, basic stuff like that. They evacuated a lot of people, maybe maybe more than they needed, all things considered. Um, but as a result, you don't expect to have any radiation-associated fatalities from either of those events. Yeah. And that's I think, speaks to both the design that goes into it and also the philosophy of how you manage when something does go wrong. I wanted to ask about uh, preempting some of the many responses to the show pro or con. So I finished watching the show actually still pretty pro-nuclear and yet I can still understand why someone could watch that and say even if something like Chernobyl is a 1 in 10,000, 100,000 chance the potential of of catastrophic disaster is so great that we should just not allow this. This is too dangerous. What has happened since Chernobyl that should put those kind of concerns at ease? I mean, what are the kind of safeguards that are in place at the moment that um, should, in principle, stop anything like that from uh, happening? Well, let me make two classes of observations. First is technological. Mm-hmm. Um, as I talked about earlier, the, the designs that we're talking about and have everyone else talked about for the last 30, 40 years, 
don't work that way. Um, not only they all have containments, but they all are designed to respond a hell of a lot better when things go sideways. So that's kind of the technological piece. We already touched on that one a bit. Let me talk about, I think, something equally important, and that is the institutional response. So one of the things that really stands out when you watch the show is the extent to which the, the, the role of the state was to contain the public relations problem as opposed to maintaining a safe or um, uh, the public health of the people nearby. We don't do it that way. We have a separate independent nuclear safety regulator called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, they have open hearings. If you want to go through all of the materials that from when they look at licensing nuclear plant operators and operations, it's on their website. I mean, it's all open. It's not the culture of secrecy and um, fear of being blamed. What really happened out of Three Mile Island, from my point of view, in the U.S., was the development of what we now have come to call a safety culture. That it really is this recognition that no, everyone at the plant has a role in constant vigilance to maintain safe operations. If something seems wrong, you say something. Um, it, it goes into seemingly trivial things. Um, if you're walking in a nuclear plant and you're walking down the stairs and you're holding a cup of coffee in a notebook, someone's going to stop you and say, hey, you should have a hand on the railing. And the point isn't that they think you're going to trip on the stairs. It's because in that moment, you switched off. Mm. And this is not because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says you have to act this way, but the industry as a whole said we need to think about what it is we're doing and how we're dedicating ourselves. And we did create a, an institution among plant operators called the Institute for Nuclear Plant Operations out of Thermal Island to say, all right, we're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to measure how we are doing on safety. And if your company isn't doing a good job, you're going to have to explain why not. And so that peer pressure that in the case of the Soviet Union was towards hiding and secrecy and pretending there isn't a problem, instead gets turned around and said, no, I need to be able to stand up in front of my peers and say, yeah, I'm doing it right. Any realistic assert, you know, um, uh, analysis of nuclear energy would acknowledge that the, the chance of a disaster of someone getting cancer you know, down the line, is it's not zero. It's a non-zero risk. But what I've seen is some literature suggesting that part of the problem is that when something like Chernobyl happens, you can see it. Right, it's very visible. Uh, I mean, in the show, quite literally, sunburns. You know, people rotting away in hospital beds. Even that's an exaggeration, but it's concentrated and visible. Whereas, look, all energy production comes with risks to human life and health, but that those risks from other forms of energy are dispersed. You don't. It's not as concentrated and visible, so it's easier for us to forget them. Can you kind of go into that area for yeah, us? Yeah, I mean, I, I call this the plane the plane crash problem, mm -hmm. which is when a plane crashes, it is national news for two weeks. Car crashes are a much, much, much more common source of death. But then you have this concentration of attention. And part of it, I think, comes back to the cultural fear that we talked about at the earlier outset from, you know, we, not just the Simpsons and China Syndrome, but Godzilla and Spider-Man and the like. Um, when it's nuclear, on the one hand, you can see parts of it, but actually you can't see the radiation. Mm -hmm. And so 
you can't know what you're facing and what you're not. And having been you know, conditioned to think the worst about it, it allows, I think, a, a very difficult feedback loop of not knowing what the risk really is and how to think about it. Um, when you look at the actual health impacts of production of electricity from different technologies, nuclear comes up right at the best. Um, and that's not just me as a nuclear person. That's This is the European Union, which is a very diffident relationship with nuclear um, is one source of this and there are others. And because so much of what really drives the health effects of electricity production in particular is not necessarily radiation, though other forms will miss them too. It's kind of the other air quality and water quality impacts. And you know, I don't want to you know, come off as bashing other things, but coal is really problematic in this regard. Um, and you know, when we look at the health impacts and the policy response of how to think about how do I value different technologies? This is one that we've worked with over time, and I'd, we continue to struggle with a little bit of what's the right balance here. And um, in, in from a policy context, it's how do I think about what nuclear benefits are and what the real risks are? And there is a bit of mythologizing that has gone around nuclear. It's been kind of hard to to break through at times. And you know, this my. You know, I do have the concern that this show will feed some of that in a way that, even if it wasn't intended, might continue to reinforce. But I, to me, the, the, the broader arcs are more of, worthy of attention than the specific representations. In, in today's political climate, it doesn't seem as if people uh, are pushing nuclear, perhaps as maybe they should. Uh, there are, you know, famous uh, congresswoman now, uh, AOC, with the, the Green New Deal and everyone talking about, uh, especially on the left side of the political spectrum, how to address climate change and global warming. And nuclear seems somewhat absent. Uh, does that have to do with uh, concerns about how to deal with the waste uh, and uh, or, or other effects? Why do you think that is? I think it mostly has to do with people not realizing that nuclear provides most of our non-emitting electricity in this country. I mean, it's about 55%. Next up is hydropower, and then you get to wind and solar and other things. Um, that lack of appreciation of the role nuclear has had in reducing emissions has been a policy challenge, and we've really begun to see people come around on it, but only recently. And I think it's because we're now starting to see economic plants in the U.S., nuclear plants in the U.S. facing the possibility of closure. We've actually already closed eight units in the last five years, out of about 100, over 100, and now we're about 97. Um, and for the most part, those you know, nuclear reactors closed because the markets in which they were operating did not value just these characteristics of, well, if you, th if you think there's a value in having no carbon with your electricity, you need to have some way to value that. And we haven't been able to do that quite as quickly as I would like. Um, and as a result, you're beginning to see folks who you know, look at climate as a really big challenge say, well, wait a second. If I'm losing that much non-emitting electricity, that might be a problem. Um, we have seen four states in the last few years 
pass policies that do some whatever job to address this problem. New York, Illinois, Connecticut, and New Jersey have all passed laws that say, well, we're going to place a value on that non-emitting attribute. And as a result, 12 plants that were going to close have instead remained open. Those provide uh, about 100 million megawatt hours electricity. That's about twice as much as the solar in the US. And this is a lot of, of what we're talking about here. And so I'll bring it back to the policy space though. That's happening at state levels where they're closer to a lot of this. I think at the broader national and international levels, you've seen more of a reassessment of where nuclear fits. Because for a lot of these environmental groups, they started as largely anti-nuclear organizations. And as the overall you know, view of the world of what we have to worry about has evolved, they've had to rethink about where nuclear fits. So organizations such as the Union of Concerned Scientists have since come out in the last, I don't know, eight months and said, actually, we need to make sure we keep these plants. Uh, and that's I think, speaks to this recognition that, well, if the real challenge is going to be carbon, how do I think of nuclear? And even you brought up uh, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Even when the Green New Deal was released, there was all kinds of supporting materials that were merely taken down. The, 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 the resolution itself was agnostic on whether nuclear was in or out. And when asked the next day at the press conference, they said, no, nuclear is not excluded. It's one of the technologies that can do this. And so I'm seeing a much broader framework of states saying, well, maybe focus on driving towards 100% clean generation as opposed to deciding which technologies you want. Right, right. And, and that, I think, is a, is a very welcome development. It's just taken longer than I would like. So Tess, we have you joining us in the studio. You have also seen Chernobyl, so you're on this side of the producer's glass now. Uh, what was your take? I mean, on watching the show and then hearing Matt describe his own reaction watching. I thought the show was just utterly terrifying, but it was really um, quite informative to hear Matt give uh, an expert's take on Chernobyl. And he honestly made me feel more optimistic about nuclear power than I expected to feel. Mm. I felt the same way. I, I, I was rather pro-nuclear before going in, so maybe that would have been a difficult position to knock me off because I know we've come a long way since Chernobyl, but I was not anticipating the just, uh, well, one, the beauty of the show, but also the the, the constant emotion of dread and, and horror that runs throughout, even though uh, a lot of the show is actually based in meetings yeah. uh, and, and discussions <laughs> among, among officials and scientists, which I think points to one of the most important uh, overarching messages of, of the show, which is it's about institutions and um, not so much the, the science, but it's about how institutions can fail and uh, when those institutions prioritize PR over safety or when they prioritize uh, the perception of a nation over the lives of its citizens, uh, you can get to some really tragic consequences. I felt um, a certain amount of uh, dissatisfaction with the initial conversation around the show. So the show comes out, anyone who's watched it is a fan. I mean, whether whatever they think about the implications for nuclear energy today, it's hard to find someone who's watched it who said that was a poorly made show because it's, it's astonishingly well made. 
I have been annoyed by the kind of surface level discussion about the implications. So there are some folks who watched it and decided whether they wanted to say good things to the show or bad things about the show based upon whether or not it makes nuclear energy look good or bad. And so they then consult that with their priors. And well, if I think nuclear energy is a good thing, we need more of it, then I'm going to boost the show. And if I think it's a bad thing, I'm going to neg the show on social media, mm-hmm. which is uh, not the point of the show. I mean, I, I, I think your point about being about institutions primarily and failures, institutional failures and human bravery um, in the midst of those broken institutions, that's the real point. Like, and Craig Mazin has been um, overt in interviews, and I think you've heard some of his podcast that this was not a nuclear power uh, uh, parable. It was intentionally about institutions, and that's where he keeps the the focus, I think, throughout the show. Um, so I, I appreciate that about it. I wish uh, folks were uh, watchers were a little more sophisticated when it came to consuming content. Like, don't don't check your art artistic. Uh, preferences, your aesthetic sensibilities based on what it means for your politics. What about the show test made you more pro-nuclear by the end of it? Mm. <laughs> it's uh, it's the worst nuclear disaster in history. Well, I think piggybacking off of what you all said, I humans don't have a technology problem. Technology has a human problem. And I kind of use that analogy for nuclear energy, that this was really a story, not so much about nuclear energy, as much as it's the human response to nuclear energy, human action in response to a global emergency and all the mistakes and pitfalls that happened along the way. And I think, if anything, the show teaches us that nuclear energy in the wrong hands is extremely dangerous, but in the right hands can be a very powerful source for good and for more productive energy in the future. I know you guys got really invested in the science of it, but I was much more um, interested in the human decision making Mm -hmm. that came, that Mm. was throughout the show. Mm. Well, that moment where was it they're trying to get volunteers, I think, to be divers. Mm-hmm. And they yeah, say, right, yeah. uh, uh, look, you know, we need folks to go down here and do this incredibly dangerous thing. You, I mean, it's everyone gets in the room that this might kill them mm-hmm. or have serious health effects. Uh, but we need to do this. Why? Well, because every generation of Russians has some tragedy they have to suffer through for the sake of uh, their society. And some of the folks are like, okay, I'll do it. Will you at least take care of our families? Can you promise that, that you'll take care of our families if we die? And he says, no. <laughs> and they still do it. I mean, so it really is a testament. And, and I've not seen any criticism of that scene, that that is, there were worker after worker, whether the miners or the divers or whoever, who responded in that way. This is a thing that needs to be done for my community, for people. And so even though this broken institution has inflicted this on me, I'm going to do it anyways, because that's what brave people do. I liked... Uh, during our discussion with Matt, that he emphasized uh, the obvious truth, but is nonetheless worth um, saying out loud, which is you can't um, you can't PR your way out of physics, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Uh, everyone in the show is um, who is immediately at the site. There's none of this 
bullshitting going on. Yeah, Everyone yeah. is, okay, well, what are the numbers? What's the, what are we going to have to do? And cutting back to, uh, to Moscow and to the apparatchiks and those discussions seem so removed. Yeah. Uh, and I think helped emphasize the, the different objectives that two groups of people had. One was uh, seemingly we need to address the, um, the life-threatening dangers here and now. And a lot of people uh, further removed in the political sphere were more worried about how this was looking to the rest of the world. I'll probably note too that this isn't just a, uh, it's not just a par parable about socialism or communism, though it does obviously, I think, has implications for a command economy and the communist system. But I mean, there, something similar happened in South Korea when there was that ferry disaster a few years ago. You had hundreds, literally hundreds of high school students who the ferry is sinking is bit by bit. It was not a fast process. And they stayed in their rooms because the captain told them to. And everyone was waiting for the next person higher in the chain of command to tell them what to do because they were more concerned with covering their rear, rear ends than they were with doing the obvious logical thing right in front of them. So this is not just true about a Soviet economy or a socialist system. It can be true of any other institutions that have this kind of top-down deference to authority and a lack of openness to dissent and uh, free thinking. I am seeing multiple television shows right now with the theme hindsight is 2020 mm. not just television shows but a lot of um film and television um there was the theranos documentary and the theranos podcast about elizabeth holmes and that disastrous company there was the fire festival documentary and i take that in the same vein of this chernobyl tv shows of the um this idea of toxic leadership in hindsight is 2020 and technology is ruthless. Like you said, um, physics and PR doesn't really mix. And I think that's a very interesting idea that we should look forward to exploring more and keep in the back of our minds as we're exploring new technologies. I thought, uh, I mean, that's a really interesting observation. I hadn't thought of Chernobyl in the context of the Fire Festival documentary and Theranos, uh, but also maybe adding um, like the Bernie Madoff like scheme into it all. Because whenever I've watched any documentary or movie about Madoff or Holmes or the Fire Festival, Chernobyl, I always find myself thinking, like, there must be a point at which people think it's impossible to save face. I just have to, like watching the fire documentary in particular, I just thought, why wouldn't you just say, I'm sorry? Like, you know, this is like, this isn't going to work. I'm really sorry about this. Uh, we, we have to call it off. Or with Thanos, you know, it's embarrassing. Like, it's not great to say, look, this doesn't work. I wish it did. And, um, and all the rest of it. But I mean, Chernobyl, of course, the most deadly of any of these things, right, was uh, still then you had uh, the engineer you know, pushing this uh, this plant to breaking point or into a situation it shouldn't have been in uh, for institutionally bad reasons, right? That it was a good signal for promotion, which seems like a disastrous system at the beginning. Yeah, I suppose the consequences of a few thousand disappointed hipsters on an island uh, eating <laughs> ham and cheese sandwiches are not as bad as, yeah, uh, what happened at Chernobyl. But I was struck with the uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, comparison. Um, so one of the things that's gone viral about the Chernobyl show is the meme showing Dyatlov, the engineer. They tell him 3.6 Röntgen, and he says, not great, 
not terrible. And now there's a whole series of memes. It's like the new version of the dog in the fiery room saying like, this is fine. So right. I want one with Elizabeth Holmes holding up like a, a blood sample being like, not great, not terrible. Mm, <laughs> that's mm. One thing I can ask for from our listeners, uh, please produce that meme. And uh, I think that's where we'll end it on that note. Uh, so thank you for listening. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.